While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. episodes we've done we've just kind of gone into it and instead of talking about i don't know chickens or whatever um we let you talk about yourself a little bit because oh, people already know who we talk are is so good though i kind of would be really <laughs> bummed if i was listening to it and then some random person's voice wasn't talking about whatever <laughs> that should be the new tagline for the show is a random person's voice talking about whatever that's pretty accurate i would say <laughs> Do you have opinions on chickens, Catherine? Um, you know, when I was a when I was a, a kid, um, we like at Christmas, you know, my family had one of those uh, nativities, like a like a manger scene that uh, it, that I got really bummed that there weren't any like an accurate representation of what I deemed to be worthy animals. So Fisher Price, like all of the farmyard <laughs> animals, also lived in there, um, uh-huh. and the chicken fit really well up next to the angel at the top. His name was Christmas Chicken. Um, <laughs> I don't know why Christmas chicken was a he because it's actually not how chickens work. It would have been a he would have been a rooster. <laughs> That's the miracle. The Christmas chicken. <laughs> That's the miracle of Christmas chicken. <laughs> Here's frankincense, myrrh, and I'm the third Mur- guy. I brought. <laughs> yeah, I brought a male chicken. It's my gift to the holy baby. That's what they call him, right? The holy baby? The sure. holy baby, yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Overdue. This is a <laughs> oh, podcast. Oh boy. That's how about we're kicking the... this off. <laughs> this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. I'm the guest. My name is Catherine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Stuck the landing. Excellent. Oh. We trained you well. Uh Catherine, who are you? What's your deal? Who Why are you am here? I? I am here. Um I am here for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that uh, I really like this podcast. Um, I've only come to get to know this podcast in recent weeks, but I've known Craig for a really long time. Um, and in a big way, I'm definitely here because Craig and I used to uh, carpool to work together and have these long, lengthy debates about whatever, except that it was at 7.30 in the morning stuck mm-hmm. in traffic. So this forum feels like a better place to do that thing. Um, but I'm also here because I read a book this week that I have been meaning to read, uh, which is called Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. Cool. And I'm here to talk about it. Okay. And uh, what what put this book on your radar? Like, why have you been meaning to read it? Um, I have been meaning to read it because I am a feminist, um, which... Should, sounds sort of like a weirdly bold political statement and it should the way be. you said it yeah <laughs> like, the way you were like hey i went on this podcast to like tell the world right. <laughs> once and for all right that i just basically believe in human rights for everybody which most people should probably get on board with and yet uh you know that word is fraught with a lot of misunderstandings so um, yeah. it has this weird sort of like i identify as this thing um when it really doesn't need to um so but in part uh i read this book because um i am also a writer um and i have written 
a lot for the internet about feminism, um, about what it means to be a feminist, um, kind of doing some versions of cultural critique um, from a feminist perspective. I'm at work on a book about all of these things, um, and I have written some things about feminism that other prominent feminists have thought were pretty great, um, which was very cool. I run I run two different blogs. Uh, can I plug those? Is that what this is for? Yeah, whatever. It's, great. it's like credibility and whatnot. Yeah, so this it's is fine. like my weird bio portion, but... Um, yeah, I'm the author of uh, a blog called I Am Begging My Mother Not to Read This Blog, which is sometimes about feminism and sometimes about anything else. Um, and I'm also the creator of a blog called Lady Pockets, which is where uh, I Photoshop fake fashion magazine spreads. And I tell you things like how to get the look for less or who wore it better, except that what I'm, the only women that I'm featuring are powerful women like Hillary Clinton. Um, I'm telling you how to get Ruth Bader Ginsburg's look. Um, so that's a blog <laughs> that I happen to think is pretty funny, and it's it's actually just a critique of the way that the media talks about women. I get to say that it's funny. I think I like, it's pretty no, great. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty funny blog that I write. It's pretty good. <laughs> yep. That's, uh, that is me. And I've written some stuff that this is like my feminist credential thing. Um, the United Nations Council on Women retweeted uh, a link to a thing that I wrote about what it means to be a feminist. So they have given that a stamp of approval, which I'm taking as some kind of endorsement that I might have some right ideas. Do you think that means that Hermione Granger has like read the letters that make oh, up your name? That would be so awesome. She's Craig, really Hermione. Cool. She's not real. She's not a real person. Right. He means Emma Watson, who's a you know <laughs> activist and an actress okay. and a feminist. Catherine's okay, right. Good. I couldn't remember her real name, so I just said Hermione <laughs> Granger. Oh, Craig. I completely blanked. <laughs> I knew uh, who you were talking about. It's cool. Try to do your research next time. How about on a random Craig? thought I had right that second? Yeah, I have to research all my thoughts before We've they come got out of my a mouth. Phalanx of fact checkers you can set on these things at any given time. I don't understand why you never ever use them. That's just a bunch of men hiding behind dictionaries. See, and Catherine can tell us why that it why it's weird that you just said that they were men. Like, can only men oh, look things geez. up in dictionaries? Oh man, no, I don't know that I can tell you that thing. <laughs> and that's what's so complicated about me reading this book <laughs> is that a huge part of bad feminist, um, which. I guess should do I need should I wait for the part where you're like, hey Catherine, tell me about what this book is. No, um, it's whatever. Yeah, dive right. into that. I do want to come back to Roxane Gay in a little bit, but let's let's uh, keep the conversation going. Okay, so uh, so Bad Feminist is a collection of essays, um, and some of them are personal essays, and a lot of them are cultural. Uh, criticism. So many of these are things, pieces that have already appeared on the internet, and they are talking about music, they're talking about movies, they're talking about television and pop culture, um, and they are these personal, sometimes interwoven with these sort of personal narrative stories of her life, um, and a big part of what she talks about, um, like it, you can kind of glean a lot of that from the title alone, right? She's um, kind of it almost made me a little nervous as I was reading it like this idea of what does it mean to be a bad feminist like is this going to be some um I don't know like how do you kind of a, like it's a bold statement to make like as if there is one right way to be a feminist and I am not that person I am not right. doing those things yeah we'll talk about that I'm sure it seems to imply that there's a a binary system of feminism or 
that there is a you know even that there is a specific good way to do it absolutely that someone might not be doing yeah and like a huge part of that book is her debunking that idea like making very concrete statements to the contrary that try to encompass wow humanity is a really complicated thing and feminism is a very complex system of ideas and beliefs that might all not sync up together because everybody is going to have a different idea about what it means to identify as this label um, and to identify in this one belief. So yeah, would it be would it be useful to kind of just describe like the dictionary definition of feminism just in case we need to do that? Sure, yeah. Cool. Um, so the one that uh, I have used and have written about is like the, I believe it's the Merriam-Webster definition, um, which is that a feminist is someone who advocates for the grounds of equality of men and women on social, political, and economic grounds, right? Um, so basically just saying that they believe that men and women should be afforded the same basic human rights. Um, and it sounds really simple when you put it in that context. Like I think you'd be kind of hard-pressed to find people that say, like, no, I think men and women should absolutely not have the same basic human rights. <laughs> <laughs> but then when you it, ask people, you know, are you, would you consider yourself a feminist? Um, there's a very, like, there's a funny backlash that's associated with that word, right? This idea of, like, oh, God, no, that, ooh, ew, feminism, gross. Because <laughs> it's a really, it's a really loaded word, and I, I feel like mostly it's, um, it's critics, like the movement's critics are responsible for this kind of thing. But there's this, this idea that is shorthand for like the, the man hating, yes. like bra burning, armpit hair, like whatever, like whatever stupid stereotypes you can think up, like that's what a lot of people associate now, with feminism. Andrew, and not this, not this like perfectly reasonable <laughs> definition where everybody should just be treated the same. But also it's like that implies that all all of those things you just said are bad. Like I know. I, sometimes I, know. I, I hate dudes and I have armpit hair. I've never burned a bra, but you I know it's fun. There's <laughs> No one here's the thing about that bra burning thing. Like that whole that whole um, like myth of the bra burning woman is actually mm -hmm. because a journalist um, misidentified um, a photo in a newspaper article in 19. Remember, remember, I'll do some research yep. later. But that that it was in fact not a demonstration where women were burning their bras to protest, uh, you know, on behalf of feminist grounds. Like that was actually just a pretty gross journalistic error, and yet it's like this defining iconic image of the feminist movement that like bras right. are really expensive. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> like, a good bra will set you back like 50 bucks. No woman is going to burn that thing. They're, they're great. They keep you supported and lifted and they're expensive and we don't make quite as much as men do. So we're not going to take our 77 cents on the dollar and set it on fire. Like, <laughs> you would if you really cared about the movement. That's not true. No, you said it was a journal. No, I think I, I think I knew that story, but yeah, the fact that it, the fact that it is such a quote unquote defining thing that people think about when they think of the word is, I don't know, like, like it, it's a testament to how much of this stuff is like based on misunderstanding of what. Well, are we sure where it was a bra? Do we know, know that it was a bra? Could you know, they have I'll been be burning honest, something else? They, I think they might have been burning something else. It's been a while since I read up on my history of what that 
that moment was about. So I feel like a bit of a bad feminist right now for being your guest on feminism and not being able to tell you this really basic thing that I should know about. That's fine. (laughs) We should probably talk about Roxane Gay. and, And I know that the book has some autobiographical elements to it, so we don't need to necessarily do a full, you know, sketch of her entire life but why is she the person to have written this book like where did where did this book come from in her life and how does that factor into this you were even you you were saying Catherine your experience of reading the book is complicated for you as to who you are as a feminist why is her identity as a feminist important to the book it's a great question. Um, Roll so, it back to just who the heck she is. Who, who she who she is, right? Um, Roxane Gay is um, is a, a, a female. Um, she is a woman of color. She is a professor. She is a writer. She is an academic. Um, she is a competitive Scrabble player. Like one of cool. my favorite essays in this entire collection was about her experience um, moving to a place where there just wasn't a whole lot going on. Like she moved for a job um, and then sort of discovered the world of competitive Scrabble uh, and how that kind of impacted against, uh, you know, it, like this idea of all of these different identities like that definitely comes into play throughout a lot of the book but a whole bunch of why I love that essay is just that it's getting at the root of kind of the absurd nature of competitive scrabble (laughs) (laughs) they're not words that sound like they go together they really don't and about (laughs) just the 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 absolute seriousness with which the other members of competitive scrabble took it um so it was great it's uh, you know i i don't want to speak for the rest of you but i am not someone who comes from a particularly athletic background um like i was not a kid who played a lot of sports growing up so like to hear that language applied to something as like deliciously geeky mm. as as competitive scrabble was really lovely and wonderful um, and humanizing, which I think is probably why it's included in this collection um, because a lot of what she has to say um, are very pointed, articulated uh, sort of cultural critiques and talking about like, okay, this is how I perceive the world as it currently exists and why all of these things that we are immersing ourselves with, why our movies and our television, um, why all of those things kind of around us are inherently sort of flawed. But then again, I'm just this person. Um, and here are some of the things about me that maybe you should know that inform my read on who I am and also how the system is maybe stacked against us in ways that are very, very difficult to sort of quantify. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Where did this book is not all just she sat down to write a book and this is the stuff that came out? Like, where is some. Where does she come from as a writer? Yeah, you know, here's what's um, what what I had a hard time if I would. This is so tricky because I hate to launch into like the first thing that I say about the book is like, here are my criticisms about it. That's um, a fine place to start. That's OK. <laughs> well, y- y- you know, yes and no, because uh, while part of what part of the reason why I struggled a little bit with this book, a lot of this is material that has appeared um, in various versions of. Uh, online before, right? And so a lot of the things in here are essays that were written in very much pointed response to 
um, things that had happened in the news that we needed to talk about. Or this is when The Help was released, and this is the essay that I wrote about my experience going to watch The Help. Um, This is the essay that I wrote that summer that Blurred Lines was on every radio station ever. And this is the essay that I wrote in response to that. Um, And so... Like a very, like a pretty significant portion of the book is coming from her response to moments that, if you are familiar with that thing, is really interesting and like really, you're kind of able to get that window in when you're like, yes, I do remember when Wendy Davis had her filibuster on the Texas state legislature floor, and we can talk about that. Um, but it's been a while since that happened now, so I don't totally remember what everyone uh like sort of the particulars of that specific moment um and sometimes the parts where i felt a little disconnected um were when she was specifically critiquing for instance books that i hadn't read before or films that Mm. i hadn't seen and so it kind of left me with this weird feeling of like uh i'm sure that i i would care more about this if i I felt like i i kind of felt like i had shown up to class without doing the homework in some ways Um, So that made it less of a satisfying read as something to just sort of pick up and read cover to cover um, because there were moments where I felt like I I could feel myself sort of disconnect because I wasn't familiar enough with the source material to really um, appreciate the thread of her argument. Yeah, and and there are ways to to provide context for that kind of thing if if you're writing about it. But she... Um, is primarily an internet writer or like that's the background she comes from. Like she's been in in the New York Times book review, McSweeney's, Salon, The Nation, The Rumpus, a bunch of others. And um, and I think a lot of these essays appeared as internet pieces for the, you know, for the first time. And especially if she didn't want to go back and like heavily revise a lot of them, like you were writing like when when you're responding to something pointedly like that you're probably doing it on a deadline like there's probably pressure to be timely and there's probably not a need to go into like the full background of whatever it is that you're talking about sure it kind of um, like because your your reader's going to be familiar with them but yeah i totally um i totally get that as like a criticism of the book is that you can't just come to one of those internet pieces necessarily like 3 years later and still get and still, like, be immersed in the conversation around that one, like, the two days when we were all talking about that on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm. and, and, you know, and all that being said, like, I think she did go back and revise and try to provide context. And you can sort of see the hand of that editing in there throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that, you know, she didn't have that thought. Very clearly she did. Um, but still, I think that, that there was definitely, for me, a sense of... Um, sort of a sense of honestly sort of being tired at the end of some of those pieces, right? Because even though like they would sort of jump very wildly from this thing happened and I want to talk about it. And then you would turn the page, you know, three, four, five, six pages go on where she tells you about that thing. And then you move on to the next essay and it's something wildly different and equally as problematic and equally like we want to talk about it. But by the time you read nine of those in a row, it kind of creates this cumulative sense of like, Oh God, there are so many problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, the uh, one criticism I read kind of goes into that same vein is that um, she, the, the reviewer says that the takedown of the help is extraordinary, but the same arguments return repeatedly in pieces about other films. Yeah. Yeah. And like, um, not only, yes, that is true. I would, I would agree with that. Um, and there is, there's one sort of moment where she, she one essay is back to back with another one and then the first one she says something to the effect of like I am 
too tired to be able to like go to the the lengths to find a joke about rape that I think is funny, right? It was in response to like, I don't know if you were familiar with the, there was a, an incident with Daniel Tosh a few years back. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think yeah, I recall that. He was, yeah. um, he was heckled at a comedy club and for making a joke about rape and a woman in the audience stood up and said, you know, that's not funny. And I believe what he said was something to the effect of like, you know what would be really funny is if five guys raped you right now. Uh, and it's, yeah, yeah it's one. awful and it's awful. And it's this like very thought provoking moment that she talks about in this essay. And then you flip the page that clearly it's something that's been written in the wake of her processing that incident, dealing with it. And then she says, oh, you know, I actually was able to find a couple of really good examples of jokes about rape that work, but you're sort of caught in this whiplash of wait, but you just said, <laughs> like we mm, we all just got yeah. outraged about that thing that nobody should ever make jokes about that. You 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 have a really solid argument for convincing me of your point of view. And then you turn the page and she's like, "Well, well maybe not so much. If you can do it in this way, it's okay." Um and in some ways she really kind of embraces that logic. Like a lot of what she has to say is grasping at this idea that one thing can be true and another thing can be true and seven other things on top of those things can also be true and some of those things will contradict one another and that doesn't make them less truthful. It just means that humanity is complicated, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, unfortunately, I feel like I opened a door that let you let out more critique than you were ready. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I also want to talk about things I like. So, well, let's get to that. Let's get to what the heck she means by bad feminist and what is this compli- this this kind of complicated view of humanity. That- right. It's, it seems like that, that critique also gets around to what the book is about, that, like, we want these labels to be neat and we want everything to, we want there to be sides that we can take. So that when we like retweet something awesome, that we feel like we are on the right side of whatever issue it is. But really, things are more complicated. Oh man, than that, things right? are so much more complicated. Um, <laughs> can I can I read a little passage that she writes about that? Yeah, go for cool. it. Cool. Okay. Um, so this is in her introduction to the book, um, and she says. I embrace the label of bad feminist because I am human. I am messy. I'm not trying to be an example. I am not trying to be perfect. I am not trying to say I have all the answers. I am not trying to say I'm right. I am just trying, trying to support what I believe in, trying to do some good in the world, trying to make some noise with my writing while also being myself, a woman who loves pink and likes to get freaky and sometimes dances her ass off to music she knows, she knows is terrible for women and who sometimes plays dumb with repairmen because it's just easier to let them feel macho than it is to stand on the moral high ground. So, yeah, that's like, you know, a whole lot of what she has to say is about that nuance. Um, And I I get that. I relate to that. Um, She does this interesting thing a little later on where she talks about the the year of Robin Thicke, right? The the Blurred Line single, which the lyrics, yes, are really awful. They're absolutely promoting this idea that a man can sing the lyrics, I know you want it, and have it be about, like, I know better than you do if you want to have sex with me. Um, And yet, it's really freaking catchy. Like, it's incredibly danceable. Let's also, just for the record, I'm going to come down on the right side of history. Daft Punk was the summer jam that year. Yes, that is true. I'm just going to say. Andrew, back me up. What about what? Daft Punk? That was the summer summer where it was Blurred Lines versus Get Lucky. It was Get Lucky. I was on the get lucky side of that but i yeah 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 just making sure we're all in agreement here yeah Yeah. no we're (laughs) 
I didn't know what you were asking me for a second, but yes, I, I am on the Daft Punk side of that debate. No. I'm up all night to get lucky. No blurred lines over here. Maybe that song has, we haven't talked, we haven't turned the microscope on Daft Punk because we were so upset about Robin Thicke. It's but. true. Maybe Robin Thicke was like, that happened and it was just so egregious that everyone kind of didn't take the time to write think pieces about what Get Lucky is saying about feminism or robot heads. I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe I'm giving them credit where they don't necessarily deserve it. But I thought the implication was that they're up all night to consensually get lucky. You know, <laughs> I that just didn't. That actually was in the original version of the song, but they cut it out. It didn't. And they fit. decided it didn't flow with yeah. the rhythm very well. I, so no, but I, I backed you up on that. I, I definitely feel like because it's not gender specified, like two consenting, two or more consenting adults. in Or robots. Or robots are up mm-hmm. all night and then they're going to get lucky. Good on you. Let's talk yeah. about feminism, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> Um, hey, okay, so part of me wants to, like, ask you a question, because I also feel like I've been talking for a while, and I'm curious what you guys think. Is that cool? Can of worms, Pandora's box, and other idioms. Can of worms box? Can of worms, Pandora's box, box, and other idioms. of worms. (laughs) So, okay, so part of me was really, like, interested in coming on on this podcast, because you have talked about this like a lot and as i've been re- listening to your old episodes about the fact that you are two young white dudes um who are trying to examine material that sometimes is not completely in your wheelhouse so um mm-hmm. i'm sort of curious like when i pitched this book and you guys were like that's great um what like do you have any relationship to this material already have are these issues that you feel like you sort of tackled before or like even as something is like do you each consider yourselves feminists? Like, I guess we could start there. Who do you want to go first, Craig? Why did you ask me? I just want to know. She asked the question. Okay. (laughs) I'll go first. Go first. I'll go first. I got the drop on you. So why don't you go first? There is a, uh, my short answer is that I saw a really powerful Ted talk. I wish you remember who gave it. I'll try and put it out. If I can find it, I'll put the link out on the Facebook page. That was kind of the, if you're a dude and you don't understand why you might want to be a feminist, here's why. Um, and it was basically like for for all the sons ever who could, you know, use a worldview that includes a better world for their moms and for their sisters and for their daughters, right? Mm-hmm. And that a world that is where everyone is on more equal footing is going to be better for everyone else. It's like a really impassioned plea using that kind of logic. And as someone who was raised by a single mom and had two sisters, that's really where I identify with it. Um, And I find myself, as we've kind of talked about on the show, grappling like with what you were saying earlier, Catherine, is like what are the messy details of putting that into practice? And I think that's why a, a lot of people shy away from the label or shy away from you know, waving a flag with that written on it 24-7, you know? Yeah, um, like, yeah go ahead, Andrew. Just my my evolution on this has been really complicated because I, I probably talked a bit on the show about how, like, I had a fairly conservative upbringing and, like, I was not exposed to much other than, like, rural white Ohio when I was growing up. And so there were a lot of these ideas about, like, 
institutionalized and really subtle sexism, racism. Like I didn't grasp the, these arguments until maybe like five or six years ago, I don't mm. think. And so um, like definitely I would say I'm a feminist. Yay. But I like I <laughs> I I it's it's strange like I shy away from obviously this is complicated like okay so there's this thing that happens we were talking about the internet outrage cycle I think a little bit ago and there's this thing that I think sometimes happens where and somebody put it pretty succinctly once was that like being 10% wrong on liberal Twitter is sometimes worse than being like a hundred percent wrong. Like you get this person who is nominally in your corner, but maybe they don't have the quote unquote right view about something and they get sort of shouted down when maybe they don't deserve it. Or maybe they maybe like another more, I don't know, productive kind of conversation yeah. <laughs> would have been the better way to go. And like, I look at that and I think like, why can't we be more reasonable about it? Like, why can't we be happier with like baby steps in the right direction? And then I'd turn around and I think, well, I'm a white dude and I kind of have all the stuff that these people want. And so I'm in a, like, I'm in a place where it's really crappy of me to be telling other people what to do on that. Does this make any sense at all? Yeah, like I'm just, it's really, it really, it really does actually. Um, yeah. I, I have a lot of sort of thoughts and feelings about that exact thing. Um, in part because I am a writer for the internet and I'm, all too aware of what happens when you put something out there and then the response comes back and sometimes it's it's misinterpreted in ways that are really smart and thoughtful and often it is sort of attacked in ways that are like either deliberately or sometimes it feels like willfully misreading things that I have said in order to prove a specific agenda like that's mm -hmm. a thing that happens um, yeah. can I read a quick quote Catherine actually from Rembert Brown's Tumblr on this subject. Sure. He's an internet writer, and he actually Roxanne Gay put this on her Tumblr a few weeks ago. Uh, it's about this issue specifically. Uh, There's no longer a, a space to improve as a person publicly online, he says. Uh, somehow we're at a point where you best have every opinion perfectly formulated by the time you're ready to be, pu be a published writer. Instead of growing up online, it's currently grow up, then go online. The days of Twitter being a masturbatory vehicle simply to say anything that's on your mind are long gone. Now it's a never-ending process of climbing a moral and intellectual ladder by way of constantly figuring out which side of history on each argument you should stand on as loudly and quickly as possible. Uh, the same person, he says it, doesn't, it shouldn't be like this, the same person should be allowed to critique, get critiqued, excel, and make mistakes. But when we all become so insecure in our abilities, the increasingly rancid performance art eventually becomes a reality. Oh, that's really accurate. <laughs> yeah, I read, I don't know where I came across that piece, but yeah, I did read it and I thought it was really great. Yeah, it's it's incredibly accurate. And what's what's really fascinating about this book in some ways is that when you consider that they were pieces originally written for the internet, like there are moments where you almost you you almost can sense like the writer anticipating the comment section if that makes oh yeah sense. it's like that thing of like I'm gonna say this thing and I already know this is 
these are the ways that I will probably get attacked for saying that thing. So let me just say the thing that feels obvious about that thing I already said. <laughs> and Andrew, I've had beers with you about this specific thing. I do that all the time. And I like on the one hand, like you kind of need to do it. But on the other hand, like I hate it. And I feel like it kind of weakens your writing oh, when, you have, to, when you have to think about that all the time. It always does. And part of, I will also admit, like this is my own sort of insecurity as I read this book and I would sense myself getting frustrated with this exact same thing and a big reason why I was getting frustrated with that tendency in her writing is that it's also a tendency of my writing like yeah. I'm painfully aware that that is a thing that I do um, and that I kind of take extra steps to like have I covered all of my bases to make sure that this thing that I'm saying is going to if I am going to make anybody mad I'm going to try to do it in a way that feels useful um, and sometimes that's actually just as destructive as having the viewpoint, you know, um, and just saying what it is you need to say. Um, Roxane Gay actually has a really good um, paragraph about the outrage cycle. Um, sure. Can I, yeah. Okay, cool. Right. The time for the outrage over things we already know is over. The call and response of this debate has grown tightly choreographed and tedious. A woman dares to acknowledge the gender problem. Some people say, yes, you're right, but do nothing to change the status quo. Some people say, I'm not part of the problem and offer up some tired example as to why this is all no big deal or why this is all being blown out of proportion. Some people offer up submission cue ratios and other excuses as if that absolves responsibility. Some people say, say, give me more proof, or I want more numbers, or things are so much better, or you are wrong. And some people say, stop complaining. Some people say, enough talking about all the problems. Let's talk about solutions. And then another woman dares to acknowledge that there is a gender problem. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> <laughs> where does where does Roxanne see herself in that cycle? Do you, do you have a sense from the piece? I mean... Yes, I mean that this piece specifically, and that's why I kind of brought this up too, um, is that it is talking about the idea of women's fiction, women writers, women in the literary canon, or this idea of literature as part of the classic idea of literature as we know it, as well as contemporary fiction and nonfiction writing. Um, but this idea that women are not as well represented as they should be in that field. Um, and she comes down pretty clearly that you know, publish more women writers. I don't want to hear this argument that we just can't find them or they're not submitting or women don't, you know, aren't creating work that is worthwhile of attention. Um, that that isn't true. And that if you are a publishing house saying, you know, no, there's not enough good female writers out there. That's why our, you know, gender statistics aren't where they need to be. Well, then that's a little bit on you if you're aware of the problem and you are someone who is responsible for publishing authors. Maybe you should make it part of your mission to seek those writers out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll say uh, Eric, a listener of the show, put on our Facebook page, uh, an article from The Toast called Books That Literally All White Men Own, The Definitive List. I read that and, list. <laughs> yeah, and he gave us like a a kind of like nice shout out that we'd covered a bunch of them. And I'll say it kind of <laughs> made me feel bad. Feel like <laughs> <laughs> that we had hit more than enough of those books by now. Kind of, I appreciated the discourse about the show and Eric's a big fan and I like him a lot. But... Yeah, I felt a little guilty looking at that picture of Don Draper reading Portnoy's Complaint or whatever it was. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I didn't have to read that book if Don Draper was going to cover it for Mad Men. Come on. Um, I, I, I don't I'm, even know if there was like a value judgment implicit in that list, though. <laughs> no. like, right? I don't know. <laughs> 
I guess by making the list, there's a value judgment, right? And probably yeah, a I worthwhile suppose. one. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think by saying, w- was it specifically white dudes? Was that or just dudes? Yeah, was, white, yeah, white, white men. White men. Yeah. yeah. I will, I will, I will throw this out there, and you, you, neither of you know that I'm going to say this, but, uh, but I, I did a little, I did a little research, um, like an hour ago. If you were to guess, like, hey, here are the hundred and nine books that we have cut. Co- what episode are we up to? Hundred and oh, like work. Fourteen. Okay, yeah. so how many? Like, what would you say your percentage is? Is it like fifty percent? 50 were we at 60 40 like where do you think we you are in terms of female authors versus male authors over the span of time yeah that's all that's the only span we have andrew well i mean like the the, because we go we'll go through runs and and especially like if we if you and i if we read two or three stories of kind of the same thing we'll start to say well we kind of need to stop doing this so i think I would like to say that we're close to 50-50, but in practice, we're probably like 60% male, 40%. I was going to peg us at 30 at, at in a really optimistic sense. At 70-30? Yeah. You know what's great? You guys are right in between. You're at about 35. Okay. Yeah. I could be wrong. I did it pretty quickly. Um, So if somebody listening out there wants to double check those numbers, um, and some of it's a little complicated, like uh, you've covered some authors uh, multiple pieces are there so yeah, the writer yeah. only got counted once and there were some co-authors and um what's her name that wrote 50 shades you know two of those books were by her but boy those books are the worst in the in yeah, the list in like true. the math that you're doing right now today that those books are not helpful so. <laughs> <laughs> no but those those i was gonna say like the fact that she was a female writer did you know up your stats but then again those books that's called I've seen The Wire. That's called goosing the numbers. That's not good. <laughs> it's called juking the stats, Craig. Where, where did I get goosing the numbers from? Goosing the numbers. Did I get that from just, Fifty Shades? I was going to say, you must have that made that like up. You just like pinch the numbers on the rear. <laughs> I'm going to goose your numbers. Ugh. We're reading a book called Bad Feminist. I didn't mean to say goose the numbers. <laughs> There's actually a whole, I thought of you, I laughed a couple of times while I was reading this book because I was like, oh, people who regularly listen to this podcast will appreciate that there is a shout out to Nebraska at one point. Yes. Uh, in that Roxanne Gay once lived there. And there is also an entire chapter on why Fifty Shades of Grey is terrible. Just one chapter? Just I'm one. really <laughs> impressed with the economy of the writing. two of our podcasts to how terrible it is. <laughs> so. It was just one chapter. Check that math, Catherine. Let's I, go. I'll double check, but I'm pretty sure it was just the one. Although there was one really good analogy in there that I was like, they will appreciate that. Where um, I'm trying to remember exactly. It, it was something to the effect of um, BDSM relationships in real life as compared to those kind of relationships as portrayed in 50 shades of gray is the same equivalent as real food and McDonald's have with one another. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. So, so um, I feel yeah. like we've spent most of the uh, show wrestling with like the big issues, which is totally great, which is, you know, what the book is about. And part of the reason why I was so excited to have you on to talk about it. But, um, Let's, as we get into like the last 15 or so minutes, let's talk about specific essays, like things that you really liked or things that you really thought 
drove the points home. Like let's let's talk a little more with a little more specificity about the book and not just the issues that the book that sure the, totally the issues that it's grappling with. I mean, yeah. part of what the reason why I feel like we've gone to like big issues versus specific um, specific essays is that there are I want to count them right here easily um, thirty. You know, so mm-hmm. they're covering so many things and some of them are so specifically pointed at this is a big issue or this is a moment in time this is a thing that happened in the news that i want to talk about um there are some that don't do that like the personal essays that she has are the ones that i think i enjoyed the most when it was giving you a sense of like oh i'm a funny woman who has an authentic you know engaging personality and my writing is going to express those things in a in a way that feels um deeply human you know it's not just idea it's idea filtered through person and and that intersects in like some really interesting ways when she's talking about race there's like a an entire chapter that's devoted to her experience as um signing on to teach a class after finishing up grad school and like getting hired and then this experience of overhearing colleagues essentially say oh yeah well you know she's the minority hire um Mm. and sort of how that can't help but sort of bleed into your framework right of like if i'm going to stand in front of this classroom of students um what is it that i can possibly say or do to dispel that or to just be present or how can I work harder to prove that I am justified in being here um but like it's also kind of funny like she has a whole section where she says like the first day like she stands up there and everyone looks at her and then she has this moment of like oh no like I'm in charge like I am the one they're looking at me because I'm the professor and I need to profess um (laughs) and she like I, I I wish I could find the quote right now it's um something to the effect of like I let them play with Legos on the first day and for five minutes I am awesome (laughs) you're like yeah you are that's great i'm so sorry that then you had to worry about if that lego moment meant that you were somehow not qualified to be there because of the fact that you happened to have been born a black woman ah um (laughs) does she talk about either what you were saying earlier about her needing to kind of dispel the uh, minority hire stigma or does she try to turn it around and then you, you know what I mean? I like does she try to make positive change, affect positive direct change about that issue by being that teacher or is she just trying to rise above the issue? I mean like both of those things and that's what's so great and so frustrating about this book is that there aren't any clear answers to any questions which is why this feels sort of meandering um, you know she talks about how she does spend a lot of time working incredibly hard and pl- like just placing her students lives at the top of her priority list and making sure that she is always the one going this extra mile and being there for her students and supporting and that some of her that she specifically is paying attention to like the black students who have shown up at this college some of whom are not qualified to be there and she is the one who is making sure that they have the resources that they need and also at a certain point that's exhausting and that can't be you can't be firing on all cylinders all of the time expecting to be a superhero because you're also just a person um, who sometimes needs to take care of yourself. And I think anyone 
who spend any time, you know, in front of a classroom can absolutely relate to that feeling. But with the added burden of having to throw gender and race in on top of that, um, yeah. makes it a particularly complicated thought. Okay, so what are the, you mentioned earlier that she goes through different pieces in pop culture that come out at a specific part, point in time. We talked about blurred lines. Um, are there other specific popular items that sh- that she takes on directly? Yeah, the one about the help is sort of the most um, damning, I guess. Um, and it's, it is, it's it's I forget the quote that you pulled that talks about it, I believe, as being exquisitely well-written, um, which it is. Um, and, and it is, I, are, are, have either of you seen the movie The Help or read it? Are you familiar with it? I've seen parts of it when it's been on TV. I have not watched I'm, it. All I'm just, I'm familiar with the critical reaction to it, which is like, it's a movie where white people get to feel really good about themselves yeah. basically was the, was the reaction. Yeah. That is a lot of what she has to say was about this experience of watching this movie. Um, and, and, and specifically about her discomfort at being the only black person in this movie theater um, and experiencing this idea of like white people who were genuinely mm-hmm. moved by this, by this thing, but because it was set up in a framework where white people got to feel good about being the saviors of this situation, and like as if it like black people had nothing to do with the fact that that there is like centuries of historical oppression that all play into this, um, and and she she is raw like there's a really raw power that kind of goes into her critique of it and what's what she's really grappling with there that I think is really interesting um is that she talks about this idea that like anyone should be free to write about whatever it is that they want to write about right like this idea that we should be having these conversations um that span race, that span cultural tradition, that span gender, um, that we, she w- doesn't want to tell men that they're not allowed to write female characters. She doesn't want, you know, that's not, that's absurd. But also, like, her, her grappling with the fact that this was a white woman that wrote this story about black women um, in the 1960s South and how that did offend her, that her, like, this white woman's, sanitized version of this black experience um that she wanted to say no like i'm sorry you do not have that authority to talk about that thing um yeah i don't know it's something that i and it's something that i think resonated with me very strongly because i have also written about issues of race on my blog before um some of which have been like the most popular and polarizing pieces that I've written, um, all of which have come very specifically and pointedly from the perspective that I am a white woman who can only write about my experience as a white woman, as how I navigate Mm -hmm. race in this country. Um, and, and yet, you know, um, it's this tricky thing. Like on one hand, there's this argument that, um, conversation about race, of course they need to be happening in white communities. Um, white people, you know, statistically speaking, know and interact with other white people. And so if white people aren't having this conversation about how race in America is a flawed thing that we all need to grapple with and talk about, then these conversations aren't going to happen. And yet there's also this part of me that every time I'm, you know, 
considering writing a piece, I have to kind of check myself and say like, well, is there a writer of color that maybe isn't getting their voice heard because mine is the voice that people are paying attention to? Um, and that's really tricky. And I don't totally know the answer of what to do about that. I don't know if you guys, that resonates with yeah. either of you. I mean, it's like, it's a rough thing because conceivably the movie and the book, the help could have made some people like, but you know, by introducing these issues into these spheres where maybe they wouldn't come up naturally like maybe you are raising awareness of an issue maybe you are leading people down this rabbit hole where they can then dig in and and find more and like draw some more of their own conclusions but like one you know one the issue where you know it's somebody who who doesn't really own these issues writing about them as though they do own them or like they do have some stake in them and then like with a movie like The Help or with any with any kind of historical stuff that looks back and covers this kind of stuff, I think that um in a subtle way that can feed into the the assumption that the problem is gone. Like yeah. Yeah. these these people solved this problem back in the sixties, like civil rights fixed it and now it's done. <laughs> yeah. Well And I think that's harmful that's harmful too. And maybe that's not something that Roxanne Gay is, is saying, but I think that's you know, this that's part of this complicated conversation. Yeah, I mean it absolutely is. I think that there you know, it's funny, like there's a lot of ways in which the feminist movement and the civil rights movement intersect and have to intersect. Um and one of the big sort of myths is that, okay, well, um Martin Luther King happened and we have Obama, so we're cool. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and the same, the same sort of equal myth is like, well, you know, women can, um, vote and own property and, uh, they can get divorced now and abortion is legal. So I really don't know what you ladies have on your minds. Um, like there's, there's, but those really are (laughs) two very real I need to go watch that Mel Gibson movie where I can hear what women think. Cause, uh, cause I just don't get it. I don't know what their problem is. Who is this? This unfortunately, this character is all too real. I was going to ask who this character was, and I was like, "Oh no, way too many real people. Playing. Not a character <laughs> at all." What are all these women complaining about? <laughs> Jesus, man. Oh, but then like, but then you get into this weird. I don't know. I I, I think I'm also approaching this uh, this specifically from the place of um, having gone down a few internet wormholes this week and been I've been reading a lot of um, forums on men's rights activist Reddit subthreads and some blogs yeah. out there that that are like that there are communities of people who genuinely believe some things that I find deeply offensive, deeply offensive to my core, you know, um, where yeah. you, you sort uh. of uh, like in in sort of almost like broadly comical strokes and what what feels so tricky about that right is that the, then also like for for however many uh how do i phrase this exactly like yes for every ridiculous and absurdly misogynist thing that a men's rights activist has said like somewhere in there are like one or two very legitimate complaints about the way that men are marginalized in some ways by a patriarchal system they wouldn't put it like that but that's kind of what it is that this system is not set up across an equal playing field um and that we should be having conversations about how masculinity in this construct can be kind of damaging um i forget where i was going with that i'm really sorry you guys i want to go back we're, we're, <laughs> totally in the time that we have i want to go back to 
what you were saying earlier about the feminist movement and the civil rights movement, because I think there's something that was called to my attention, even in just researching this book, and that you said to me the other day, Catherine, the idea of who's been left out historically of mm-hmm. the feminist movement. And it seems like Roxane Gay has some specific opinions about that based on who, even just who she is. Well, sure, she's a black woman, so um, she is going to have some thoughts about how, you know, the the version of feminism that has been sort of popularized is this sort of Sheryl Sandberg. Is that that's the lean the woman who wrote Lean In? The right? Lean In Lady. The Lean yeah, In yeah. Lady, right? This idea that um, white feminism is going to be concerned with uh, the pay gap, right? Um, that idea like we are still having conversations about having it all you know i'm using air quotes right now mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. because it's almost become one of those stock phrases that feels a little meaningless in some ways because we've been using it for 40 years um mm-hmm. but there is this assumption that that white feminism is concerned with these things um and once they sort of have these things we're less concerned with the black women who are saying things like hey you know that 70 cents on the man's dollar fact that you guys keep talking about, it's way lower for us. What's going on with that? Um, you know, there is a there is a very real thing that happens where where white women have a tendency to be the voices of the movement that are heard, um, and it's it sometimes can feel like no, it is at the expense of feminists of color who maybe don't have access or opportunity to make their voices the ones that get handed the megaphone if that makes sense um so it is really great that that this is a new york times bestseller um and there is so much to really recommend this book which is i guess why i'm already like oh man i can this is the internet critic like you know my little uh voice on the shoulder that's like boy i can't wait to Listen to this podcast where a white lady tears this book down immediately. (laughs) Because that's actually not my experience of reading it. There's so much insightful, smart, funny writing to recommend it. Um, And just based on the virtue of the fact that we don't have enough statistical representation of voices that don't get heard often enough, like, yes, buy this book and then look up other writers who are also women or who are also writers of color and buy those books and start listening to what they have to say. Um, does that make sense? Like, Yeah, well, and it sounds like the book itself is a little microcosm of what her view on feminism is, is that it's it's messy, right? Yeah. You kind of, in, in the same way that what I was reading on this book said, I'm glad you said it earlier, Catherine, that there were times where this book really excited you and frustrated you at the same time because it sounds like she is really quick to point out something bad and really slow and nuanced and perhaps unsuccessful or not even trying to point out something to do about it. Mm-hmm. And for some reason that seems to dovetail, to me anyway, with our very early conversation about whether or not people are willing to adopt the label feminist or any ist, yes. right? Because it's like, yep. I don't want to put that label on myself because even what she's saying, right, is I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know that I can boil it down to an actionable objective. So I'm just going to back away from it and disengage from the process entirely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and what it seems like um, Roxanne Gay is going through is like she's trying to advocate for a middle ground that acknowledges that everything is complicated in this 
in this particular place where there is not really a vibrant middle ground. Like people tend to be on, yeah, on extremes sides of the issue, and um, and, and yeah, and and I guess that could be another reason why people are are hesitant to apply that label to themselves because they feel like it it requires them to to be on one extreme end of it or the other. I guess. Yeah, I mean. I, I absolutely think that that's a really smart way of 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 critiquing not only this book but this book is um, reflective of any movement, right? Um, yeah, is that of yeah. course it's going to be popularized with people who nobody really everybody's pretty good at identifying that there are problems and pointing out why they are a problem, <laughs> um, and not as many people are good with like here's a thing to do about that problem. Um, and I, you know, it's funny. I especially I caught myself in a few moments where I would read sections of this book that directly were about issues pertaining to all women, right? And those were the yeah. ones that I felt really energized me and like, yes, I see that problem too. I absolutely hear where you're coming from. I get you. I'm connecting with you. I see the same things that you are seeing. And then, as soon as I would read sections that directly pertain to race but not gender. I caught myself sort of checking out a little bit like, oh, man, that must be really, really terrible for you, but I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Uh. Uh, right? And that's <laughs> no, terrible. Do. It's terrible. <laughs> and you catch yourself having these thoughts where you're like, wait, nope, not the point, not the point of what she's saying. But it's hard when you also are reading these very smart, well-reasoned critiques of why film the black film industry from 12 years a slave to tyler perry to the help they're all terrible and problematic and there isn't enough representation of of black culture in mainstream films and also i don't i'm not a film producer so i don't know what to do about that on like a concrete level does that make sense yeah and i was even just thinking we were talking about this earlier about uh who gets to say what about what just at a very base level and I feel like, Andrew, let me know if you've felt the same way, but whenever we've okay. talked about books uh, written by authors of color, and t- as you pointed out, Catherine, there's room for improvement on our track record, probably in that regard, too, even though you didn't crunch those numbers. But I was thinking because about... they don't apply to her, obviously. She's just not interested. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, but here's what's great is I laughed. So I just want to make sure that that goes on the record that like, hey, I am a feminist. Also, that was super funny. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about when, we t- when we've talked about those books, I know I've very, I've gravitated towards talking about like something like Their Eyes Were Watching God, like really trying to work hard to process it through its historical context because mm-hmm. yep. I don't have personal access to how it pertains to my day to day you know, or how it might pertain to the day-to-day of someone of color. Um, so in reading those books, I I feel like I'm always treading very carefully, and I'm treading very carefully right now because I know abstractly how I feel about some of those issues and where I would like to come down in history, but I don't encounter all the ways that I can put that into best practice, and I don't certainly don't know what to do with reading this book from X number of decades ago and what I'm supposed to do with that. So for now, I'll just talk about it on the internet and hope that it helps someone else that knows what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Whenever, whenever we come at these these books where we are uniquely unqualified to understand like the issues that the writers are are, are forwarding, yeah, I would try to do a lot more research. Like it boils down to not wanting to seem really stupid. I guess that's what I mean. That's what we're all yeah. trying to do all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's and well, that and means- also like it's not it's not the worst problem to have because we volunteered oh, yeah, to do no, this no. radio show, and oh man, we look dumb talking about a thing we don't understand. There are way worse things that we could be going through. Yeah, capital we P could privilege. Be, yeah, we Catherine, could be going through. Say? We could be going through the things that we're trying so futilely to understand. But it dovetails <laughs> so nicely back to that conversation that we just had about this inability to grow on the internet right like um i'm thinking so specifically about um uh because i listened to the the episodes out of order but i heard the critique and the sort of um revisit of when you guys read pride and prejudice like i heard that segment before i actually heard you guys talk about the book um just that I actually know I really loved I really loved it and I sort of wish I had heard it in order because it was definitely a moment of like oh yeah I made a a, a funny joke that was funny at the time because on one level it kind of is it's totally a play about a bunch of ladies who just want to get married um uh, <laughs> it's a book about a bunch of ladies who just want to get married also I just a said play, play that happens it's also too. a Don't play it's also a movie it. but it uh, like yes that is true that that is true but the absurdity of the joke is the thing that wasn't totally examined, which is like, yeah, of course these ladies all want to get married. There's nothing else for them to do. Their entire lives depend on it. And what I thought was so great about that was a moment of like, oh, I learned a thing. I'm aware of that thing that will change the way that I approach this material in the future. Um, And that was really lovely as a listener to to get that kind of perspective into that process. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. We didn't bring you on to compliment us or to make us feel better about ourselves, but, but it doesn't you hurt. gave us that gift anyway, so thanks. Uh, Catherine, one last uh, thing. Where where can people find your stuff again as oh, a plug? Sure. You um so my blogs are called I am begging my mother not to read this blog and uh, Lady Pockets or you can just Google Catherine Fritz. Um and you know, that's me. I pop up on the Google. Cool. And that's Catherine with a K and Fritz with a Z. That is correct. F-R-I-T-Z. Does F-R-I-T-Z. anyone spell it F-R-I-T-S? That sounds like a food. I, if we say they don't, then we're going to get a bunch of emails. Like every <laughs> every member of the Fritz family is going to... From Nebraska. From Nebraska. <laughs> no, I have no family in Nebraska. Um, no, F-R-I-T-Z. That is how you spell my name. If okay. you are in Nebraska right now and you spell your name a way that is not normal or typical <laughs> and you want to tell us about it, you can email that in to overduepod at gmail.com. It's a uh, really, really narrow net that I think you're casting. But. Well, other people I'm sure could write in, but they probably were going to anyway. Uh, we've gotten some really nice listener emails recently. We've got a couple that we want to tackle on future weeks, uh, kind of revisiting our YA fiction conversation from the past couple of weeks actually a couple of different books have been relevant to that discussion but in the meantime i want to thank abigail sarah and another sarah Uh, abigail wrote in to thank us for keeping a smile on her face while she moves to a new city and we want to thank her for listening Uh, sarah wrote in saying that this is the book club that she's always wanted to join but never had time for Um, if she joins another sarah if you join another book club please still make time for us like, don't just stop listening because you found another book club. We'll miss you. <laughs> uh, and the other Sarah that wrote in uh, thanked us because after listening to episodes that of books that she has not read but had on her to-read re- to list, she realized that I certainly don't want to read them and can scratch them off my mental to-do list, making me feel somewhat more accomplished. So we're happy to, to help yeah. you out there. 
I've heard a lot of that feedback in regards to like the Moby Dick episode specifically. <laughs> like no, everybody wants to have read Moby Dick. Nobody is, wants to read it. This is what we are qualified <laughs> to do, to help yeah. you check stuff off a list. Uh, <laughs> also, thanks to Alex, Ricey, Emily, Nicole, Joel, Jerry, Rachel, Sean, Leslie, Sophie, Monica, and some other people for reaching out to us on social media. You can do that at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Andrew, where else do they go? Uh, they should go to overduepodcast.com, which is where we keep everything, like all the other <laughs> stuff. <laughs> we've got we've got links to our iTunes and Stitcher and RSS feeds you can use to subscribe to the show. Um, last week, we put out a call for iTunes reviews. We were sitting at like 97 or 98, and we are currently sitting pretty at 106. Whoop, whoop. And we got a few uh, really nice reviews from Turner's Mama, Camilla365, Raincoat underscore clad, um, and a, a few name. others. That's yeah, it was name. really good. <laughs> Uh, we really appreciate those those reviews. Those those really make our day when we, when we get them. Um, also on that website, we've got a link to our Patreon project. That's patreon.com slash overdue pod. If you want to financially support the show, um, you can go there. Um, we just recorded our last bonus, our first bonus episode. Our last one ever. Our first and our, our last our one. Our first and our last bonus episode. Project. It didn't go really well. No. <laughs> uh, we recorded our first bonus episode last week. It's up for patrons now. Um you, uh, the unwashed masses, will get it. I think on on Wednesday or Thursday this week. Um, but yeah, if if you want those episodes, we're gonna do one a month. If you want them early, go to patreoncom pod, Um, throw us some money. If you don't want to do that, you know the support you give us by just listening is enough, and you'll get those episodes eventually anyway. So don't feel too bad about it. Um, Craig, what? Who's reading what next week? I know we're a little bit out of order, and um. I apologize. We're kind of in peak wedding season for both of us now, and we're just we we would rather get an episode up uh, rather than trying to futilely get the the episode that we promised to get you up. So, who's reading what next and when? So, I'm currently working through a collection of Jorge Luis Borges. I'm guessing nice. I said that. Yeah, you really. Jorge Luis Borges. Nine point five out of ten. Uh, a <laughs> collection of his stories called Everything and Nothing. Um, we've referenced him enough on the show that I felt like it was time to get to him. And I'm reading that because there's no way I'm going to finish Outlander anytime soon because it's a long book, mm-hmm. but I'm working on that for a future And then episode. I'm also working on The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which is by Anne Bronte. And there's going to be, I think I'm going to have to do a lot of extra Bronte research too, because it's my first time dipping a toe into that pool and it, I could get sucked under, I think, if I don't. <laughs> I don't prepare. What is this oh. metaphor that you've constructed? I don't know. It's the big old. Did big you old hear bu- that they made Bronte quicksand? They made the Brontosaurus a, a dinosaur again. They reinstated it. That's yeah. How did that go for them? I don't. I don't know how to respond to that. Joke. <laughs> Catherine, thanks for being on the show. It's great me. to have you. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I was really, really happy to be here. We'll have to have you back. It was a fun time. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will see you next week. And until then, try to be happy. Bye.